0: We'd like to welcome you again. My name is Pastor Rick. I'm the senior pastor here at First Missionary Church here in Bern. And whether this is your first time watching or several times, uh, we're so glad you're watching with us. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of John. John chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 11. We've already heard from John 21 verse through 10. And we're going to look at 11 and following And before we read this, I have a quick question for you, and you can even pause it and discuss it. The question is this, what happens to us after we die? What do you think happens to you and I after we die, and how do you know? Go ahead and take a moment, discuss it, pause it, and then push play again. Well, I know that there are several different viewpoints on this. Some people believe that there is no afterlife, that that when you die... It's lights out, you cease to exist, and that's it. And some would even go so far to say, well, you know, just embrace it, you know, be a man. But but most people, if they're honest, have a hard time doing that, especially when a loved one dies or is facing death, or they're facing death. That's a hard worldview to live with. Other people do believe in an afterlife and most other worldviews besides Christianity believe that, that you have to work hard to go to a place of paradise or heaven. You, you know, your good kind of has to outweigh the bad and if it doesn't, then you'll go to a bad place or, or maybe you'll be reincarnated in, in, in a worse life form. Well, the Bible, the Christian view, forces us to wrestle with death and I actually think as a pastor, this is a good thing to wrestle with, even though it's uncomfortable. Hebrews chapter nine Hebrews 9 verse 27 says this, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. The Bible is clear that each one of us will die and then we will face the judgment of God. And I know I gave a couple of views on what the afterlife is like, but but there's even a better view, the Christian view on what the afterlife is like. According to the Bible, when you and I die, our souls go to be with Jesus and our bodies go to the ground. Paul says in Philippians 1, to be absent uh, from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's amazing. And we will be with him forever. And eventually, God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. So we're going to live with him in a a paradise, a restored world. And we're going to be with our loved ones who are believing and attached to Jesus as well. And eventually, we're also going to get a new resurrected body that won't die, that won't decay, that won't get sick or get any disease. Even if you don't believe that or are skeptical of it, you want this to be true. You know, you might think that I'm going to talk about heaven today, and I could preach a sermon on heaven, but but really we're going to take a step back because it is Easter Sunday, and we're going to talk about the reason, the hope that we have that this picture of the afterlife, this eternal life with Jesus forever is real, is all because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate every year on Easter and what you really should celebrate every day as a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, we believe that Jesus Christ on Good Friday, he died on the cross for our sins. And then three days later on Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead. His heart started beating again. His lungs started breathing. His brain started functioning. And he got a body that never decayed, that never died again. This, this is what's different about Jesus. Anyone else who was resurrected, eventually they died again like Lazarus in John 11 or any other character in scripture. I mean, can you imagine dying twice? But Jesus died once, rose from the dead and never died again. So let me, with that information in mind, let me read John chapter twenty. John chapter twenty, beginning at verse eleven. It says now Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, not Mary the mother of Jesus, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And so he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus then said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us three invitations, three invitations to do something that really bolster our faith, that we can have confidence that this picture of the afterlife that I described is actually true. So the first invitation, the first invitation that the resurrection of Jesus invites us to is to look. Say that with me, to look. So let's look in verses five to eight, the passage that Ray read. If you look at verse five, this is what John and Peter are doing. This is John in verse five. It said, he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw, so he's looking to, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple back to John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, and look at what it says. He saw and believed. So verses 5, 6, and 8 all mention seeing and looking. And if you look at verse 6 and 8 specifically, in the original language, in the Greek that this was written in, the words for seeing are actually deeper words than just physically glancing at. They, they mean to theorize, to consider, um, to, to logically infer, to try to figure out and investigate what is going on here. Peter and John are confused. Why would the strips of linen be lying there? Because if this was a grave robbery, uh, the robbers would have taken the body. There'd be no strips there. Or maybe they would have opened it up and ripped it apart and there would be you know, shreds of linen lying there. But it's not like that. So they are, are thinking, they are considering. They're trying to figure out what is going on here. And I believe Jesus Christ is inviting you to look as well, to consider the evidence To try to figure out, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happen or not? I mean, if you're a believer, you've had to consider this, or you should consider this. And every time I do this, this this increases my faith. This encourages me, because faith in Christianity is not just a blind leap in the dark. We look at some of the evidence for, for believing why we believe, and we have great evidence to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And then if you're not a believer, you also need to consider the evidence You need to consider the evidence for why you either will start to believe in the resurrection or why you don't believe. But either way, you have to have good reasons. You have to look into it. So let's look together for a second as to why we can have confidence that this actually happened. Yes, we cannot look like Peter and John did, but the text actually gives us two pieces of evidence. Uh, The first one is the empty tomb, and the second are the witnesses. So consider the empty tomb first, All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spell out that the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene saw it, Peter and John did. Even in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, the religious leaders recognize the tomb is empty, so they try to make up a story to cover it up. I bring this all up to say, and and you may have some questions about this, but the Bible presents that the tomb was empty. And even if you say, well, Pastor Rick, I don't don't trust the Bible, I, I get that. But if if the followers of Jesus were making up the resurrection, all the authorities had to do back then was to say, hey, here's the body. We found it. Uh, That's not going on. But the tomb was empty. They couldn't reproduce a body. A stronger piece of evidence besides the empty tomb that we can look into are the witnesses. So here in John 20, we see Peter and John are some of the first witnesses, but especially Mary Magdalene, she is the absolute first witness to see Jesus in his resurrected form. Which is really interesting that Jesus would choose her of all people because back in that day and age, women were a little bit like second class citizens. In fact, many people think that women were not even allowed to testify in court, that that their testimony was not considered valid evidence in a court of law. And yet it's interesting that the very first witness of Jesus is Mary, a woman, a woman. This must have been very um, uncomfortable for the first Christians as they're spreading the testimony about Jesus. They say, hey, it was a woman who saw Jesus first, but there was no getting around it because it actually happened. There would have been no advantage to including this in the early accounts unless it actually happened. These aren't the only witnesses we see in scripture. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, who is only writing this about 15 years after these events, says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, that's the 12 apostles. And then after that, he appeared to more than how many people does it say? 500 of the brothers and sisters all at the same time, most of whom are still living, Though some have fallen asleep, that means they've passed away. So it's like Paul is saying, if you don't believe me that Jesus actually rose from the dead, go and find these witnesses. Come talk to me, talk to Peter, talk to the disciples, talk to these 500 brothers and sisters who saw him all at the same time. They can tell you that they saw him, they experienced him, they touched him. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, he talks about the empty tomb and the witnesses, how if you bring both together, it's very compelling. He says, if there had been only an empty tomb and no sightings, nobody would have concluded there was a resurrection. They would have, have have assumed the body had been stolen. Yet if there were only eyewitnesses and no empty tomb, no one would have concluded there was a resurrection because people's accounts of seeing departed loved ones happen all the time. All they had to do was go to the tomb and say, here's the body. It's not true. But if both are true together, the empty tomb and the witnesses, you have a powerful reason to conclude that Jesus actually rose bodily from the dead. Now, you may be watching, whether as a believer or in a non-believer, and say, you know what? This is still hard to believe. I mean, it is. It's a miracle. People don't rise from the dead every day. I can't produce this on, on video or on YouTube because, you know, if you watch it on YouTube, it must be True. But even if I could, then you would say, well, Pastor Rick, that video is not true. It's a hoax. It was doctored. It's true. I can't show you a video, but I can't show you a video of anything from that far back. And yet we believe that many things happened in history that we don't have a video of. Do you want to know why I believe in the resurrection? I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but logically, as I've looked into it, probably the biggest reason for me are the witnesses. The witnesses of the resurrection were dramatically transformed. I mean, think of Mary. She is crying, she is weeping, but after she meets Jesus, she's excited. She's full of joy. She's going to tell the disciples that he is risen. Or think of Peter and John and the disciples. They are depicted on Good Friday and before as scared. Peter is depicted as denying Jesus, wanting nothing to do with him. They are scared, locked in a room, afraid the same thing's gonna happen to them that happened to Jesus. But but after Jesus rose from the dead, After they touched him and saw him and experienced him, they transformed into the boldest, most extraordinary witnesses. They started preaching and they started getting arrested for their faith. They even died for their faith. I mean, according to tradition, Peter died for his faith. He was crucified upside down. John, for his faith, was sent in exile to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Blaise Pascal Famous scientists and theologians said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I mean, it's hard to think that they would just make this up and die for something that's made up. So I would encourage you today, whether you're a believer or not, to look, look and see what is the evidence to actually believe that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. It'll strengthen your faith if you're a believer and it'll challenge you if you're a skeptic. The second invitation I have the second invitation, the resurrection of Jesus, invites us to love Jesus Christ personally. Say that with me to love Jesus personally. So if the first point was more intellectual, more logical, this is getting more personal. In fact, many people come to faith in Christ, not even based on the first one, but on the second one. Look at Jesus' uh, interaction with Mary. It's an incredibly personal and moving and warm interaction. Verse 15 and 16 say this, he being Jesus asked her, woman, which by the way, that's not putting her down. That's just the way you addressed a woman back then. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, teacher. So this is an incredible interaction. In fact, you could say that this interaction between Jesus and Mary um, really sums up what Christianity is all about. It really sums up some principles of salvation. Let me give you a couple. The first principle is that God had to seek her, Jesus had to seek Mary, if she was really gonna understand and come to true faith in Christ. God had to seek her, if she was going to overcome her doubt and grief and really understand who Christ is. So yes, Mary is looking, she's considering, she's seeking, she's trying to figure it out. But at the end of the day, God had to seek her and bring her into the kingdom. And many of you know watching that that this is the same is true for you. Yes, you may have sought out why Christianity is true. Yes, you may have encountered God in an incredible way. But as you look back at encountering God, you realize that it wasn't you just moving forward. It was God pulling you along. It was God seeking you so you could understand who he was and bringing you into the kingdom. Even if you had to do so kicking and screaming. But at the end of the day, it was God who sought you out. Just like he sought out Mary. You know, if you think about um, uh, Jesus' interaction with Mary, it's pretty incredible. He's so gentle. He, He asks her questions. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And then he looks at her and says, Mary. I mean, I often wonder how that would have sounded. I don't think Jesus yelled at her and said, Mary, what are you doing? Come on. No, but he said it probably gently, personally, intimately, Mary. And Jesus may be doing that same thing to you right now. He may be looking at you, beckoning you, calling you. If you feel that right now, don't resist it. In fact, welcome it and consider that God is pursuing you right now. He wants you on his team. He wants you and his family. You know, even with Peter and John, God had to seek them more than they saw him. During Jesus's ministry, as Peter and John were following him around, Jesus told them many times that he would die. And then three days later, he would rise. It says he told them plainly about this and yet they missed it, went right over their head. Peter and John are not expecting that the resurrection of Jesus is going to happen. They are confused by all of this. You know, if I were them, I would like to think that I would have had it figured out that I would have got the disciples together, you know, and said, hey, Peter, uh, you bring the grill, John, you bring the hot dogs and someone bring the brats. We're going to camp out at the tomb and we're going to have a resurrection party, you know, a tailgate party celebrating that this tomb is, is, is no longer going to be a grave. Jesus is going to come out but they are not doing that. It took God pursuing them, explaining to them, helping them to understand who he is. Another principle we see here too is not only that God has to seek us to know him, but if we're gonna have a relationship with God, if we're gonna be saved and experience that wonderful reward in heaven with Jesus, then salvation is purely of grace. Say the word grace with me, grace. In other words, if we're gonna have a relationship with God, it is all based not on our works or our efforts, but on his work, his efforts, his gift of grace. How do I know this? Well, look at Mary again. We've already talked about her being a surprising first witness, but if you know her past, if you turn to Luke chapter eight, verse two, we learn some more details about her past that that she was one of the women that followed Jesus around and supported them. And it says, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And then there's Mary called Magdalene, the same one here from whom how many demons had come out? Seven demons. Jesus and his ministry, or maybe the disciples had cast out seven demons from Mary. She was a transformed woman because of Jesus. You know, if you read the gospel accounts about people who are possessed by demons, it's pretty dramatic. Some of them are naked. Some of them are crying out and foaming at the mouth and convulsing. Some had to be chained because they are just supernaturally strong by the presence of these demons. I mean, they make people look crazy. They are oppressed physically and mentally and emotionally. And yet the fact that Jesus, of all people and all humanity, he says, I want Mary to be the first one to see me resurrected, to experience me, to touch me, that speaks volumes to the kind of salvation that God offers. You see, what God is teaching us is that salvation is not for those who have it all together. It's for those who don't and realize it. Salvation with the Lord is not for those who can kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and work for it. It's for those who realize they can't, that they need help, that they're desperate. Salvation is not just for the rich, it's for the poor. It's not just for those with education, it's for those who are uneducated. It's not for those who seem to have a good life, it's for those who've been oppressed, even demon-oppressed, and in shackles and in chains, and who need freedom. I mean, Jesus is teaching us through this passage that salvation is purely of grace, not of works that we trust in his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection to save us. The only thing that we bring to the equation with God is our neediness. The only thing we bring is our weakness and our guilt. The only thing we bring are our mistakes and our past and especially our sin. You know, John 10 talks about Jesus as the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice. Jesus says, says Mary's voice, says Mary's name, excuse me, and Mary recognizes Jesus' voice. Could the good shepherd be seeking you out right now too? Could he be saying not just Mary, but Bill or Dylan or Bob or Ashley? Could he be saying your voice today too? The third invitation that the resurrection invites us to, so we said it calls us to look, consider the evidence, and to love Jesus personally, just like Mary was called to love Jesus personally. The third invitation is to locate our identity in Jesus. Let's read that together. To locate our identity in Jesus. If you think about identity, people have defined identity as a sense of self and a sense of worth. It's a sense of knowing who we are and that we like it, that we're, that we're valuable. And every human heart, every human being is on this quest to kind of figure out who they are and that they're worth something. In fact, some scholars would say that we here in America in 2020 are the most identity-obsessed culture in all of human history because we are obsessed, we are frantically searching to figure out who we are and if we're valuable. Our culture teaches us that if you want to have an identity, do you know where they tell us to look? Our culture says, look in your heart, look on the inside for your identity. That's in every movie or Netflix drama. It's in every Disney movie. Look at who you are on the inside. But the problem with that is if we're honest, is that who we are on the inside, our hearts change all the time. I can be certain about one thing one moment and the next day I've changed. I can be certain about one thing one one moment, the next year I've changed. That is an unstable, unrealistic identity. And so some of our culture will say, don't look inside, but look outside. Look for your identity in achievement and career and the praise you get from that, or look to your identity in money and how much you can get and the praise you can get. Some of us look to our identity in, in just other people's opinions. So if we get a lot of likes and not dislikes, you know, we feel good. Some of us look to our identity in our ethnicity and culture, our, our background, maybe our last name and the family we come from. Some of us look to it in our sexuality. All of these things, they are sinking sand. They will not last. They are unstable. But here in John 20, we see that we are invited to find our identity in something or rather someone else. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, Mary at this point is clinging to Jesus. She's touching him. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to be around for a while. He would be with her at least another 40 days and the disciples. But then I think he's ultimately saying, hey, I'm going to go ascend to the Father in heaven. But when I go, I'm going to pour out the Spirit. So, so Mary, you think it's great now that you have me? It's going to be even greater because you're going to have me on the inside. But the part I want to focus on is the second half of 17. It says, go instead, Mary, to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, who, by the way, is your father too. And I am ascending to my God, who by the way is your God as well. So do you see what Jesus is saying? That we can have an identity. We can have a relationship with not just Jesus Christ, the son, but God, the father. We can have our sins forgiven and have a restored relationship where we are affirmed and valued and loved by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who spoke the world into existence just by speaking. That we can be affirmed to know that our love with him, that is stable, that is fixed, that is firm. If you look at verse 2, in verse 2 earlier on it says, So she, Mary, came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Do you catch that? The one that Jesus loved. That's John, the writer, referring to himself in that way. And this used to bother me because John, the apostle who wrote this book, talks about himself in that way many times as the beloved disciple the one Jesus loved and i used to think that he was kind of bragging to the other disciples saying hey look at me jesus loves me more than you guys nan and boo, boo but i don't think that's what john is saying i think he has started to realize that because of what jesus has done because he has made a way to be right with god the father that he is loved dearly by jesus and loved by his father that he identifies himself he names himself he orients himself based purely on the love that Jesus Christ and the Father have for him. That is stable, that is fixed, that will not change. In fact, John would go on the right First John and in 1 John chapter 3, verse one, he says, behold, how great is the love the Father has lavished, poured out upon us, that we should be called children of God. And then he says, and that is what we are. I mean, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have an identity that won't change. That's always fixed. You have a father, and even though that image isn't perfect for some of you, you have the best father you can ever imagine who will never leave you, never forsake you. His love will never change for you because of Jesus. That's the identity promised to you today. And so I want to extend an invitation here at the end and invite Mike Ford to play too. I want to give you an invitation both for those who are already believers and those who may not yet be. I want to talk to, to you first who may not be a believer. And you're thinking maybe God is whispering your name just like he said Mary's name. He's he's beckoning you, he's calling you. And you may may wonder theoretically, how do I actually become part of God's family? How do I get a guarantee in that beautiful picture of heaven with Jesus forever? Well, the first thing you have to do is admit your sin to God. Admit your flaws and weaknesses and sin and disobedience to him. Romans 3.23 says it like this. For all have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. God is way up here in his glory and majesty and holiness. And we have turned our backs on the creator who loved us and said, we don't want you to rule us. We're going to call our own shots. And we have fallen way short of his glory. And so the first thing you can do is just close your eyes, bow your head and just repeat after me and say something like, dear God, I may not know how to pray, but, but I confess to you that I am a sinner. I confess right now that I have messed up. I confess that I've tried to run my own life rather than you, the father who loves me. And I call it what it is. I call it a sin. So that's the first step. The second step is not just to admit your sin and turn from it, but the second step is to turn to Jesus, to trust in him, to believe in him, to believe that his life, his perfect life, his death on the cross in your place for your sin and his resurrection are the only thing that can forgive you with God, the only thing that can save you with the holy God. It's the only thing that can secure your eternal life with God in heaven forever. And so Romans chapter five, verse eight, says it like this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place for our sin." If you believe in that and not your works, because you cannot work for this, uh, the Bible says our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If you believe that Jesus did this for you, then you can pray something like this with me. Father, I am believing in Jesus Christ right now. I am believing in his life, his death on the cross for my sin, and his resurrection. Lord, I am trusting in that for my right standing with you. Please forgive me, I pray, because of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have prayed those two prayers, you are on the beginning, on a path to a relationship with God. You are part of God's family. And I would encourage you to contact us and let us know. And we want to take some next steps with you to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. The Bible has a wonderful promise for you too in Romans ten nine, It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then it also says in Romans 10:13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that wonderful? I also want to talk to believers too, cuz this Easter message is not just for those who are skeptics and doubting, it's for you. How is God calling you to respond? Is he calling you to look to bolster your faith? Is he calling you to, to locate what is what is my identity and is it in Jesus or something else? Or is he calling you to love Jesus intimately, just like he was calling Mary and Peter and John and those early disciples, that they could see him, touch him, and experience him? Go ahead and take a moment of silence and let's pray and ask God that question, what he's calling you to do right now. Father, I thank you for this incredible invitation. Thank you for how patient you were with Peter and John and the disciples and Mary. And thank you for how patient you are with us. I pray that today, no matter what we're going through, that you would help us to put our identity in you and your love, which can never change. I pray for those who are feeling fear and grief, just like Mary and Peter and John, that you would come and meet them and transform it into joy and hope because your son has risen. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. He has prepared a place for us, Lord, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Lord, remind us of these precious truths, no matter what we're going through. And Father, we thank you that we have someone like Jesus who's experienced death, who knows what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you that we have him as our great high priest. Father, we love you so much today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.